going to start off this morning in Matthew chapter 4. If you have a Bible and want to turn there, you may. The, the passage will be on the screen. We're going to consider this morning the question of temptation. Uh, we're going to look at the passage where Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And what can we derive about discipleship? Uh, what can we apply to our lives that, again, may move us forward uh, in our relationship with him? So without further ado, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along or follow along on the screen. Matthew 4, the first 11 verses. Hear the word of God. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days, 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down, worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Will you pray with me? Father, we ask now that as we worship you with our minds, we bow our lives before this text, Lord, that you would speak your truth into our lives. Father, you would remove my words. They are of no importance. They are of no weight, of no consequence. And you would replace them with your perfect word. Father, forgive my sin, that it might not stand in the way of the people who are gathered here this morning to hear your word. May it not obstruct them. But Holy Spirit, may your perfect light shine into every life and speak exactly the message that you have for each one of us. Father, it may be different for me than it is for somebody else. That's okay. But Lord, I pray that you would give us your word this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I feel like this, uh, this series is almost the idea of, you know, look before you leap. Have you really thought about it before you've actually committed yourself to being a Christian? Or maybe another way to put it is, do you actually know that which you have committed yourself? Perhaps Western Christianity doesn't look quite the same as biblical Christianity, and we're going to wrestle with that for the next few weeks, and we're going to start off with this particular text. Uh, Before we dive into the text, I think it's important that we back up just a step and remember the purpose of Jesus' coming to earth in the first place. Before we look at this particular passage and and how we apply it to our lives, we need to remember what Matthew says uh, about Jesus coming to earth. In Matthew chapter 1, the, uh, the angel is speaking to Joseph, the Holy Spirit actually is speaking to Joseph, talking about Mary, his betrothed, and her pregnancy. And he says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, regardless of what any historian uh, or any critic may say of the purpose of Jesus' uh, life, his death and his resurrection, this is the reason. The reason that Jesus came to earth was so that he could save their people from their sins. And we need to understand that when we read the Gospels. 
People may disagree with that. People may ridicule it. People may say they don't believe it. But the facts are that's what Scripture claims about the life of Jesus. And we need to understand that before we jump into this particular text. Because if Jesus is going to accomplish that, if Jesus is going to be able to purchase your salvation and my salvation through his death on the cross, then there are a couple of things that must happen prior to that event. The first is this. Jesus has to relinquish his rightful place and authority and become obedient to his Father. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says this about Jesus. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus couldn't sit back in heaven and fold his arms and go, boy, I feel sorry for those folks on earth. Man, they've made a mess of it. Look at how they're treating one another. Look at how, they're, look at how they have nothing but rebellion in their hearts for us. Gee, I wish somebody would do something about that. Now, I'm going to stay up here in heaven, and I'm going to stay seated at the right hand of my Father, and I'm going to think good thoughts about those folks, and maybe something will work out. There's no way salvation is going to happen if God does not initiate it. And the first thing that had to happen was Jesus had to say, you know what, Father, I'm in my rightful place here at your right hand receiving this glory, but I need to become a servant. I need to humble myself. I need to put myself under your will and under your direction in order that we can offer salvation to mankind. The second thing that had to happen is that Jesus had to face temptation. He had to be tested by sin, by real sin, and he had to overcome that sin and that temptation in order for his death on the cross to be valid. If Jesus had come to earth and he had succumbed to temptation, his death on the cross would be just as meaningless as any other human death throughout any other point in history. The author of Hebrews points this out in chapter 2 of Hebrews. He says this, Therefore he had to be made like his brother. He's talking about Jesus. In every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation, or payment is another word you could say, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, the temptation that Jesus faced had to be real. It couldn't be something that he just could easily walk by. It couldn't be something he could say, well, yeah, I was kind of tempted, when he really wasn't. And, you know, we're all tempted by different things. Those of us who have a sweet tooth are not tempted necessarily to go out and smoke a cigarette. Those who are tempted to, uh, to have a drink of alcohol, uh, maybe more than we should, aren't necessarily tempted by a piece of chocolate. We all have different temptations, but to each one of us, those temptations are very, very real. And it does no good to have a Savior who hasn't ever faced that temptation because then his perfect life doesn't really count because he had no struggle in living that perfect life. So in order for Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, he had to suffer temptation in a very real way. Why? Because Adam and Eve were tempted and tested by sin in the Garden of Eden and failed miserably. And the people of Israel, when they were led out of captivity in Egypt, and we're heading to the promised land, we're tempted and we're tested by sin and they failed miserably. And King David at the pinnacle of his life when God had given him every blessing that was imaginable that could be his, were his. All of those blessings belonged to him, including the promise that one day an heir to his throne would reign on that throne forever and ever. When David had the world at his feet, he was tested by sin and tempted. He failed miserably. It's because every person who's sitting or standing in this room right now has been tested by sin, has been tempted by sin, and at one point or another, every one of us 
has fallen short of the glory of God. And we must have a Savior who doesn't fall short. We must have a Savior who will overcome. Thanks to uh, my friend Scott Holly, I want to show you three pictures up here this morning to see if perhaps any of you know a Rosie Ruiz. Uh, she's a runner. She was a runner. I don't know what she's doing these days. Anybody recognize her? Anybody know who she was? She was the women's winner of the Boston Marathon on April 21st, 1980. Uh, her time was two hours, 31 minutes, and 56 seconds. There's only one problem with uh, this, uh, this presentation. And those of you who know a little bit about marathon history know what I'm about to say. Rosie Ruiz didn't run the Boston Marathon. She ran about a mile or so of the Boston Marathon, and then she snuck into the race at the very end and looked like she had run for it. You look at that first picture over there on, on the far, my far right, and she's, about, she's just exhausted, and here are the police just barely holding her up as she's completed this you know, 26.2 miles, and there she is with the victor's wreath around her head, except you know what? It didn't matter because it was all a big lie. If we don't have a Savior who actually runs the race... It just doesn't make any difference. And so your eternal well-being and my eternal well-being rests on these next 11 verses and how Jesus works his way through this test and through temptation. So we read in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 4, then Jesus was led by the Spirit. This was all according to God's will into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit said to Jesus, we're going into the wilderness, and we're going into the wilderness for one purpose and one purpose only, so that you may be tempted by Satan. <laughs> Has God ever led you down a path that seems dark, and you're kind of scratching your head going, Lord, what's going on? Jesus, being the Son of God, knew why he was going into the wilderness. I find it truly amazing that even down to this deal, God, this detail, God is so passionate about your salvation and mine. And so we come to the first temptation where Satan questions God's provision. Look at verses 2 and verses 3. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. There's the most obvious statement that's ever been in the world. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. I can only imagine Satan... uh, walking up to Jesus, uh, not being hungry and feeling pretty good about himself and looking at Jesus, this, this pitiful creature here who's been out in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And I don't know, has anybody in this room ever fasted that long? Anybody ever fasted 40 days and 40 nights? I knew a guy that, that did it one time. Uh, the longest I've ever fasted is three days. So I'm pitiful in comparison to this. And let me tell you something, there wasn't much left of that guy when he was done after 40 days and 40 nights. He had dwindled away to just about nothing. And we think of Jesus as this majestic Lord and Savior, and yet here he is, this pitiful shape of a man, the shell of a man. There's not much left. And here comes Satan striding up to him in all of his arrogance and all of his pride and saying, you've been out here for how long, 40 days and 40 nights? You're the son of God? You're down to skin and bones. You, you look terrible. You don't look anything like the son of God. You know what? If you really are the son of God, listen, don't you know that, that you're the Lord over all of creation? Has anybody reminded you about that lately? You don't need to sit around and wait for your father to provide for you. You're the king of kings and the Lord of lords. All you have to do is talk to those rocks and they'll become bread. Come on, Jesus, let's have some lunch. Very real temptation for a man who hasn't eaten for 40 days and has the power to feed himself and to provide for himself 
I guarantee you that this is a stronger temptation than any of us have probably ever faced in our entire lives. And yet look at Jesus' response. Jesus says to him, but he answered, it is written, and now he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Jesus stands upon the word of God. He doesn't stand upon his experience. He doesn't look around and go, oh my goodness, I really am hungry and I really am the Lord of creation. My father must have forgotten me. He must have been busy with something else. So I'm going to go ahead and take care of this. Jesus doesn't reject the truth, but he stands upon the truth. And he says, in, in a sense to Satan, my life is in my father's hands. He promises to provide. And I'm not about to shortcut his provision by mistrusting him now. I'll eat the bread when he brings it. Do I have that kind of faith? When tempted by Satan to provide for myself? You know, Tom, you know, you're not feeling very good, buddy. Just, just live your life this way. It's going to feel so much better. You don't need to wait for God to provide. You have it within a power, your power to provide for yourself. Go ahead and do that. Don't worry about what God calls you to do. Take care of yourself. You're the only one who will look out for you. Jesus rejects this foolish statement keeps his eyes fixed on his father and on his provision. I remember when I was about 10 years old, I was uh, trying out for Little League football, and I was up at Kirkwood Park. It was late in the summer in August. The sun was setting, and practice had just finished, and we go out to the parking lot, and there were moms and dads picking up the kids. And I don't remember if it was my mom or dad, but somebody had said to me uh, what we all say to our kids, now I'll be there, I'll pick you up, just stay put, and I'll come to get you. And, uh, you know, people were getting in cars, and it was, then it was down to about 10 of us, and then about six of us, and pretty soon it was down to about three of us, and then I was the last guy there. Uh, waiting for my mom and dad. And so the, the coach, who obviously, you know, I've been a coach before, you know, would stand around and wait all night for a parent. So he said, hey, can I give you a ride home? And I said, I remember saying it's 10 years old. No, I, my mom and dad said they're coming. I know they're going to come. I believed in them. And you know what? They actually did show up. I didn't have to walk home. And my, after the first service, my mom said, I don't remember that. I'm like, mom, it, we all lived happily ever, ever. You came, worked out. It was a good deal. But I remember just thinking, no, mom and dad said they'd come. I looked around, it was getting dark, and at 10 years old, as a boy, you're automatically kind of scared of the dark. There's a you know, boogeyman that lives in your closet. But I knew that I could trust in my mom or my dad to come and pick me up. Jesus knew that his father would provide. Do I understand that when I'm tempted, when I'm tested by sin? The second temptation is found in verses 5 and 6 where Satan questions God's protection. Then the devil took him to the holy city sent him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, notice it's the exact same phrase that he used before, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Satan uses Psalm 91. He uses it out of context, but he used scripture to try and trap Jesus into doing something very foolish. Satan says, if you're the son of God, don't you know that God will shield you? He will protect you. He says so in his word. Look, it's right here, and he quotes it for him. Let's make sure that he means it. Come on, Jesus, just step off. Let's make sure that God really is as good as his word. Jesus recognizes the trap. Uh, D.A. Carson, in, in his commentary on this passage, says this is the sort of manipulative bribery expressly forbidden in Scripture. Manipulative bribery. It goes something like this in our modern vernacular. God, if you, then I will. You ever said that to God? God, if you will get me through this tough time in my life, then I, I won't miss another Sunday. I'll go to church every Sunday. God, if you'll give me an A on this test, then I, I promise I'll put a couple extra bucks in the offering plate on Sunday morning. God, if, then I will. 
Probably every one of us have, been, have said some kind of prayer like that in our lives. I know I've prayed that kind of prayer before. And friends, do we understand how blasphemous that prayer is? We don't put God to the test, questioning his protection. God promises that he will protect. We don't have to question. We have his word. We have the experiences that we have had with God before, and we should know that his love and his protection and his care is true and never failing. It's like when my children, who, were, who when they were younger, they don't do this so much anymore. Now they're just kind of, kind of, they just speak their mind now. They're a little bit older, but they'll say, uh, Dad, do you really love me? Dad, do you really love me? Now, every parent in the room knows what's coming next, right? It's not, they don't want to know whether I love them or not. I've told these children every day of their lives that I love them. I can't think of a day that's gone by that I haven't tried in some way to tell my kids I love them. You know, now that a couple of them are moving on with their lives, Katie's off of college, and sometimes I, I just have to leave her, you know, a voicemail on the phone that I pay for that she's not answering. You know, that one? You know, and that she has caller ID, right? You know, oh, look at Dad. I'll talk to him later. <laughs> So sometimes it's just a message, hey, Katie, I love you. My children don't have to ask that question. And yet we fall into that trap so easily. I wonder if God really will care for me. Will he really provide for me? But Jesus sees right through this, and look at his answer. He says to Satan, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is quoted out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And by Jesus saying, again, it is written, he's saying, Satan, you're misusing God's word. You need to put it in the right context and understand all of what God has said. We don't test God. We trust in God. And Jesus could look back on the word of God and know what it said. Jesus could also, although it's not written in this particular passage, Jesus could also look back at his most recent experience and know who he was and know of God's protection. If you go back to chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17, the, the text immediately before the temptation, it says this, And then Jesus was baptized. Immediately when he went up from the water, behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus didn't have to doubt God's perfection, his protection. His experience told him that it would be true. And so Jesus rejects this foolish notion. And he reminds the tempter that a right response is not to test God, but to trust God and obey God. If we find ourselves saying, God, if, then I will, We need to come back to the Word of God and understand that it's a question of surrender. It's not a question of negotiation. Satan questions God's provision. He questions God's protection. And thirdly, Satan questions God's plan. Look at verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, you need to understand in this text that this idea of showing him all the nations was not just uh, the Roman Empire of Jesus' day, but literally there was some way in a vision that Satan was allowed to show Jesus all the kingdoms of the world from start to end, which includes all of us in this room this morning. So Satan somehow was allowed by God to show Jesus every kingdom in every age and every people group and every ethnicity under the sun. Now, notice it says that he showed them He showed Jesus the nations in their glory. And we would only have to look around to realize that that nations are full of glory. 
Nations, there are a lot of nations that have done wonderful things and built wonderful monuments. There, there are a lot of things that are wonderful about just, just take our country and look at some of the things that, that we enjoy in our nation. The, the monument of freedom that we enjoy, that we're in a public school this morning talking about Jesus Christ is a, is a monument to the glory of this nation. But isn't it interesting that he didn't then take the time to show them all the sins of the nations? He didn't show them all the bad stuff. He didn't show them the things that this country and other countries have done that have been totally reprehensible to a holy and righteous God. And Satan is using this as a ploy. He's using us as a tool. It's as if to say, you know what, Jesus, you see all these people? Take them. They're yours. I have no use for them whatsoever. I only want one thing. What you do with them is your business. You want to you throw them into hell for all of eternity? Great. I don't care. You want to take them to heaven? I could care less. Doesn't matter a bit to me. All I want is for you to bow down and worship me. The next time you're tempted to sin, and I don't mean like just a little passing thought. I mean when you're tempted with that sin that's got a hold of you sometimes and just seems like it's going to choke you to death and not let you go, remember the source of that temptation. Remember it's the one who looked at your life and said, I've got no use for that. I could care less what happens to that person. And when you hear Satan whispering in your ear, boy, this would really be great. Come on and do this. This will be fun. Trust me. Understand what the tempter is doing. Understand his lack of care, his lack of interest, and his utter hatred for everything that belongs to God. Satan says to Jesus, my cost is less than God's. You don't have to go to the cross. I have a bargain for you. Just a little bit of worship. Jesus, just you and me. There's nobody else on this mountain. We're in a remote place. Nobody's even going to see us. Just bow down just for a moment and worship me. And Jesus refuses the easy path. He refuses the path of idolatry. He refuses to forego the cross because he knows that it's not just about your life and my life, but it's about something much deeper and much more profound. He realizes that what we're talking about is not whether or not people are going to be saved, but whether or not we're going to worship God as we should. Verse 10. Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus says to Satan, in in a sense, I will worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus says to Satan, in, in a sense, I will worship God with all my life. I will serve him alone, and I will seek to do his will, even if it means going to the cross. You can beat it, Satan. You can get out of here, because God's glory is my chief aim. My chief aim is not my comfort. My chief aim is not my ease. My chief aim is not my well-being by how I define that. My chief aim is God's glory. What an amazing answer. What a remarkable answer. Jesus hadn't been fed up to this point. He didn't get a snack in between temptations. He was still as physically feeble as he was at the outset. And by now, he has got to be just emotionally and physically exhausted. He's at the end of himself. And yet within his spirit, he knows the presence of his father. And he knows how to resist temptation. Friends, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you will be tempted. It's not if you will be tempted, but it's when you will be tempted. Look at what the author of Hebrews says in verse four, chapter 4, Hebrews. 
We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, is in every res- who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Did you sign off for this? <laughs> Did you sign off to face temptation, probably on a daily basis in your life? Did you really sign up to be tested by the evil one? Did you really sign on to face this kind of battle? this kind of fight on a daily basis, where God calls you to trust in Him. You look at your circumstances and there's no reason in the world for you to put your faith in God and follow Him. And yet God's put those circumstances just there at that moment, at that place in time so that you can put your faith in Christ and you can follow as a disciple your Lord and your Savior who looked the, the worst and the greatest temptations in the face and rejected them because he knew his father. I don't know if you signed up for that or not. It's part of discipleship. My prayer for us this morning, my prayer for myself, is that we won't be concerned with our ease when we face temptation. We won't be concerned with the, with the soft way out, with the comfortable way out that dishonors God, brings the name of Jesus into disrepute. But rather, we will fix our eyes on Jesus. We will trust in him and we will face temptation with the sure